1 Thessalonians 4, um, we're going to read from verse 13 all the way through to verse 11 of um, chapter 5. This uh, book, the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's, a, it's not a book, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church uh, that he planted. It's probably one of the the oldest letters in the New Testament. It's a very young church, and Paul writes this letter to encourage them because they're a church that is doing well. They're a church that is um, growing in the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And one of the main ways uh, in which the Apostle Paul tries to really encourage these Thessalonian Christians is to remind them that they are the real deal. They are real, authentic Christian believers. So this is, a, this is a great letter to look at if you're exploring Christianity, if you're trying to figure out what it is that Christians believe and, and how they should live. It's great to read through 1 Thessalonians because you see what real, authentic Christianity looks like. Now, in setting us up for the passage that we're about to look at in chapter 4 here, um, just have a look with me right at the start of the letter in chapter 1, verse 3. This is kind of the, the three key hallmarks of authentic Christianity that Paul talks of. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. That is the, the great triad of authentic Christianity. And as we've looked through 1 Thessalonians, we've seen how, how faith and love have been really prominent in this young church. And um, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 7, that he is comforted by their faith. In fact, when, when he reflects upon their faith, he says it makes him feel alive. We've also seen, we saw last week in chapter 4, verse 9, that this is a church that loves each other a church that really cares for each other, a church that loves God. And Paul encourages them to grow more and more into that love. And now as we come to this passage, it's no surprise, chapter 4 verse 13, Paul is going to look at their hope. What is the hope that they should have as Christians? And the basis for this hope that they are to have, and the basis for the hope that, that we are to hold on to, is the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to come back. So that's what we believe as Christians. We believe 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to, to offer up salvation for all humanity. We believe also that Jesus is going to come back, that he is going to come back, not like he did at Christmas time in that kind of humble circumstance, in a quiet sort of birth in a manger in Bethlehem. He is going to come back as the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is going to be this massive cosmic event in which every single human being in history who has ever lived, all human beings who have died are going to witness this event. Jesus is going to come back and it's going to mark the end of the world. And it's a great thing for us as Christians because we believe that that is the moment where Jesus is going to come back and completely fix the world. That the salvation that he obtained for us when he first came will be fully realized at that moment as we are all with Christ and evil and death and suffering will be gone forever as the king comes back to redeem his world. That's the hope that we hold on to. That is the basis of Christian hope. Now, the problem with the Thessalonians 
is that they, they knew this was going to happen. Paul had taught them this, but they were really confused exactly about how it was going to happen or, or when it was going to happen. And they had lots of questions about this second coming of Jesus. And Paul, he's such a great writer, um, very gifted. Subtly, you'll have noticed as we look through this letter, everything that he's been saying, he's kind of tried to include some teaching about the return of Jesus and all that he said throughout 1 Thessalonians. So even just if you had a quick glance at the end of each chapter, you would see there's some sort of reference to the second coming of Jesus. And he's teaching them because these great pillars of faith, love, and hope, they are built upon sound doctrine and good teaching. And that's what Paul is wanting to do here. So here's what I want us to do this morning as as we look at this. You know, I don't know about you, but for me often, and this is not true, but, but for me, I often kind of view these terms, faith, love, and hope, uh, as kind of flimsy words, as if, they, as if they are somehow impractical, and it's just kind of wishful stuff. And that's not the case. So this morning, I want us to grasp how powerful, how real, how authentic, and how life-changing this hope can be. This is the most incredible thing. And, and what we hope in as human beings is, will often shape how we live. So, we need to get this. I want us to be encouraged by this great hope that we have. So let's read it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read verse 13 through to uh, verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul writes this to the church, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, there is peace and security Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing." Well, you'll see on your service sheet, I've got 
just a, a brief outline of where we're going this morning as we look through this passage. Just two very simple points, um, and these are the points that how the hope of Jesus' second return affects us. Firstly, it's a hope that shapes our approach to the death of Christians. And secondly, it's a hope that shapes our approach to life as Christians. So firstly then, a hope that shapes our approach to the death of Christians. If we look at verses 13 to 18 of chapter 4, we can assume that, that one of the big misunderstandings that the Thessalonian Christians had about the return of Jesus is that they thought it would happen in their lifetime. So they thought that um, whilst they were all still alive, Jesus would come back. They must have thought it was going to happen very, very soon. They didn't think that anyone would die before Jesus came back. Now, just, just get your head into, um, into what this would be like, because this is kind of an alien concept for us. Um, but try and get your head into what it would be like for this very young church, this first generation of Christians. We're used to the fact that, that people in church have died before Jesus returns. We've had 2,000 years of it. But these people, these Christians here, they, they would have heard this, this gospel, this good news taught by the Apostle Paul, who planted their church. They would have heard about how Jesus died so that they could be forgiven of sins. And they would have heard about how Jesus rose to life again, the death conqueror. And they would have heard about how this Jesus is coming back to redeem them and to establish his kingdom on earth. And they would have been looking forward to that. But then, as they are waiting for this, people in their church begin to die. People that they loved, people that they cared for. We've seen that they're a church that, that was very close-knit, that really loved and cared for one another. And there seems to be no difference now between Christians who have died and non-Christians because they're all dying. And you could see how that would have shaken their hope. They, they, they were waiting for this great, the death conqueror, Jesus then why is it that people in our church are dying? And they would have thought, well, hold on, Paul. I thought we were all going to be with Jesus when he returns. What about these people that we've cared about? What about them now that they're dead? And so Paul writes, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now notice what Paul says here. Firstly, notice that, that Paul refers to the Christians who have died as having fallen asleep. It's a key term. When, when we think of death, we often view it as a, as a finality that is unchanging. But Paul talks about them being asleep. Sleep is something that you can wake from. Secondly, notice that he doesn't say to these Christians, he does not say to them, don't grieve. He says, yes, grieve and mourn for those who have died in your church, but do not grieve without hope. You see, this is what is radical about the Christian hope. Let, let's think about this. Why, why do we as human beings, why do we need hope? Why do we need it? And let me tell you why we need it. Because we are going to have to come to terms with the reality of death. If you live long enough, you're going to face death, in your life, you will be confronted by it. 
And you'll have to come to terms yourself with the fact that you are going to die and that everything that you've achieved in life on this world is going to fade out to dust and out of memory. Death is a reality that we need to get to grips with. And it seems like such a hopeless reality. It seems impossible to have hope in the face of death. It's such, so dark and we don't know what's going to happen beyond it. And so what we tend to do culturally with this is we just ignore it. We don't think about it. We think that, that death is just something that's, that's way off in the future. I don't need to think about it. It's something that's, that's not going to affect me for a long time. Or if, if we do think about it, if we do talk about death, we try, and, we try and almost play down its ugliness by talking about, well, it's just natural, isn't it? It's the, it's the Lion King um, philosophy of life. It's just part of the circle of life. But that's not, there's something in us that knows that that is not true. Something that, that can't quite accept that. Death is, is not natural. There's something wrong there. There's something twisted. There's something that's not quite right about the reality of death. And I think if we're honest, we know that. I was struck by this as um, I'm a big fan of a band called Radiohead. Um, and I said at the 9.45 service that this is an 11.30 service illustration, not a 9.45 one. And then I had a whole group of people in the 9.45 service who were apparently big Radiohead fans coming up and speaking to me. And then I realized that I was actually probably older than I thought. Um, but Radiohead, great band, depressing band, um, but great band. They've got a song about the reality of, of death um, called Street Spirit. It's a wonderful song. Um, and this is what Tom York, who's the lead singer of Radiohead, this is what he said about when he wrote that song and when he sings it live. He says this, Fans don't realize that street spirit is about staring the devil right in the eyes and knowing no matter what you do, he'll get the last laugh. And it's real and it's true. The devil really will get the last laugh in all cases without exception. And if I let myself think about that too long, I'd crack. Fans that can deal emotionally with that song don't know what it's about. It's why we play it towards the end of our sets. It drains me and it shakes me and it hurts every time I play it, looking out at thousands of people cheering and smiling, oblivious to the tragedy of its meaning. Now, Tom, Tom York, when he wrote this song, he was like, I want to write an honest song about what I feel when I confront this reality. And he said it hurt him when people just cheered and smiled at this because for him, when he looked at it, the devil won and it seemed so hopeless. There is no hope. And when you're grieving the loss of loved ones, there's nothing worse than that grief being hopeless. So we need hope. We need hope. But that hope cannot be false hope. It cannot be something that is fake. And most kind of religious or philosophical worldviews have a hope that is just built upon an idea. Like without any certainty to it. It is just wishful thinking. But we need something that is certain, something that is real, something that is substantial, if it is to be strong enough to help us when we have to confront the black reality of death. And when the Bible uses the term hope, it never, ever, ever means wishful thinking in the Bible. It always means 
something that is certain to happen in the future. Biblical hope is a future certainty. And what is this hope? What is this certainty that we can have for those who have died in Christ, for those who have followed Jesus and are now dead? Well, it's there in verse 14. It's the hope that they will be raised to new life and brought to God. You see how Paul talks there in verse 14. about how, So how can we view this as a certainty? It's a certainty because the basis for our hope as Christians is not some idea that someone's had. It is grounded in the objective facts of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's not wishful thinking. It's grounded in a real event. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he died on that cross. Three days later, he rose again to new life. And right now, he is alive at God's right hand. He is living proof of that future certainty, living proof that death does not have the last word. People, this is not, we're not, we're not talking in the realms of, of, of just kind of abstract thought here. People in this church are dying. We're all going to die. This, as a church, we're going to face this more and more. We're facing it currently with one of our elders, Sinclair. Facing it with, with Joan as well, Joan Burt. This is real. These people are dying. And, and, and it's horrible. Death is, is a horrible thing. And we grieve at death, but we grieve like Jesus did as he stood in front of his friends, Lazarus's tomb in John chapter 11. He was angry and he was filled with tears, but he had the power to do something about it. We grieve with hope. And so when a brother and sister in Christ passes away, we don't look at that and say with utter hopelessness, the devil's won. Rather, we look at it through tears and pain and hurt and say with all sincerity, where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? You cannot hold my brother and sister, for my Savior has destroyed your power. And he will use you as the means to bring them back to himself. We grieve with hope. That makes a world of difference. And when Jesus does come back, the death conqueror, all those who have died and who will die in this church and throughout the history of the church, they will be with him. That's what Paul says. Verse 15, the, the dead are not disadvantaged. They will not be left behind. They're not missing out. Think of it like this. It's kind of like a relay race when you have to pass the baton on. The person who has, who has passed the baton on, they're not going to miss out on the prize at the end. They'll be standing at the side watching the others run the race, but they'll be there on the podium getting the prize. The dead in Christ are not missing out on the prize at the end. They're at the sidelines watching us run the race. And when Jesus comes, Paul says, he will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet. In other words, you're not going to miss this. It's going to be huge. And look at the end of verse 16. Wonderful. Boy, we need to hold on to this. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, Paul writes, we will always be with the Lord. When the King comes back, when Jesus comes back to his world to finally redeem it, the church goes out to meet him. And it's the saints who have died who will lead the way. There's people in this church, people I know who, who are Christians and who have died and, and whom I'll miss. And you know who they are. And some of you here feel 
feel that maybe more stronger than others. But here's the thing. I'll see them. I'll see them. And you'll see them. And together we will be with Christ when the race is done. That is the prize that we all share. That is our hope. Our goal as Christians is not heaven. Our goal is to be with Jesus. That's what we want. And that is the hope that that we must rub into our grief we are confronted with death. And I don't know all of you here, but I must emphasize the fact that Paul is writing this to a church and he is writing this to Christians. You know, I heard this quote from, from someone this week. Maybe you can resonate with this. This person said, we are not afraid that death is the end. We're afraid that it might not be. We're not afraid that death is the end. We're afraid that it might not be. And I wonder if that's true of you. And can I encourage you, therefore, to investigate these claims? Because here we have the Apostle Paul claiming to know what will happen after death. And that's a huge claim, one that is worthy of investigation. And it changes everything. Because when you get this, it will not only affect how you approach death, but it will affect how you approach your whole life. That's our second point. Hope that shapes our approach to life as Christians. We see this in verse 1 to 11 of chapter uh, 15. That this hope is, is not kind of a ticket of salvation. We don't view it as a kind of get to heaven card that you play and that's it. You'll notice how, how personal and intimate this hope is in chapter 4. It's all about being with Jesus. And the reality of that shapes how you live. If you believe that, if you really believe that, it changes everything. What we hope for is what we live for. Now, it seems that these Thessalonians, as well as being mistaken about uh, or just not understanding what would happen to those who had died in their church, it seems that they were probably worried about how they should live in light of Jesus' return. So they would have been asking the question to Paul and to others, well, when, when is it that Jesus is going to come back? Because uh, we don't know if we're ready. We don't know what we need to do. When do you think this is going to happen? And so Paul writes, verse 1, Chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and security, and sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul's saying, look, it's, it's unpredictable the day of the Lord. Don't try and work out when Jesus is going to come back because you don't know when it's going to happen. It's like a thief coming in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's unpredictable. But the second illustration also shows us that it's inescapable. So it's like a woman who's pregnant who's having labor pains. I don't, don't know if you've, uh, you know, if you've been pregnant when those pains hit. You're not going to say, Um, okay, baby, now is not the time. I'm not up for this. I'm not ready. When those labor pains hit, the baby is coming and you better be ready because it is inescapable. And that's what Paul is saying about the day of the Lord. It's, It's unpredictable like a thief in the night, but it's inescapable like labor pains. So how then are we to live? This is on our horizon. This is going to happen This is more inevitable even than your own death. Did you notice that Paul talks about that some of us will be alive when Jesus comes back? See, this is more guaranteed than the fact that you will die. This is, we're not promised tomorrow. We are promised that this event is going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. I was just thinking about this. Um, uh, There was an evangelist um, in the 19th century called George Whitfield. 
And he was preaching, I think, on a passage similar to this about how Jesus is going to come back when the trumpet resounds, like Paul describes here. And he was a bit sneaky, and uh, in a hill way off in the distance, he had one of his pals with a trumpet um, blowing it. So I was tempted to get Alan um, McKenzie, the session clerk, outside with a trumpet, just to see, like, you know, to shake us up to thinking, oh, are we ready? Because it is inevitable. And here's the thing, it could happen tonight. Why not? Jesus' return could happen tonight. And we mustn't think that that's a ridiculous idea. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. So how do we live knowing that that's going to happen? Three quick things from the text. Firstly, we wait expectantly. Paul uses the image of light and darkness and night and day in verses four and seven. And the idea behind this image is that there are those who are of the night that is those of darkness who, who that's those who are, who are ignorant of, of Jesus' return and who don't really care about it. So there's kind of a nighttime behavior that he talks about as being asleep or, or being drunk. And they're just kind of images, pictures of, of not being alert, of, of not caring, of not being self-controlled, of just being kind of unaware that this inevitable reality is going to happen. But Christians, he says, those who, who follow Jesus, they, they are not like that. They're not of the darkness. They are children of the day, children of the light. They are those that, that know that Jesus is coming and they're waiting for it. They're the ones who have been enlightened. So whilst Jesus' coming is unpredictable like a thief in the night, it doesn't take us surprise because, uh, by surprise because we're expecting this. And our daytime behavior then is, is being awake and being sober That is, we are alert, we are focused. We are not to be so intoxicated by the things of this world that we forget that Jesus is coming back. That's a key point. We are not to be so intoxicated by the things of this world that we forget that Jesus is coming back. I say that's a key point because that's a key point for myself. And I have been guilty of not thinking about this inevitable reality. We are waiting and we are living expectantly for him. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? It doesn't mean we get the welcome banner out each morning and you know we, we unfurl the red carpet for Jesus coming back. Um, we've seen Paul's already talked about this. The angels have got that covered. Um, but what it does mean is this, I think. I think it just means living life Normally, working hard at our job, enjoying the good things of creation, seeking to love people, fighting to grow in holiness, but doing all of this mindful of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Doing all of this knowing the direction that the world is going and the direction that we are going. That's how we we are expectant of Jesus' return. We're, We're waiting for it. We're living for it. And the evidence that we are expecting people will be that that is where we will put all our hope. We will not place our hopes on the temporal things of this world. Yes, it's good to have hopes for your family and hopes for your job and uh, hopes for your studies. These are good things. But our ultimate hope, the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us is Jesus. And the fact that he is coming back as the king of kings. And if you're not ready, if you're not waiting... You've got to ask yourself, do, do I believe that this is true? How can we live more expectantly? Let me suggest one practical way, and it was highlighted in the notices that, that Robin uh, gave to us. Just pray. Pray, pray, pray each morning. 
Jesus, come back and fix this world and all the brokenness and the hurt and the pain. Pray for it. And then pray each night, giving thanks that Jesus has delayed his return so that people could repent and be saved and brought back to him. I think that's a good biblical balance to have, praying for it and thankful that Jesus is delaying so that more people can be saved. That's the first point. Secondly, we dress appropriately. Uh, Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 8. Verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So because we're of the day, we are not only to be awake and alert and sober, but we're to be dressed appropriately. And if I was, you know, if if I was here this morning, if I was standing, if I was preaching to you um, in my pajamas, um, more of you would probably... He'd probably be more engaged, I guess, Um, and I'd be more comfortable, but it would be totally inappropriate, wouldn't it? It would be totally inappropriate because there's an appropriate daytime dress, and so there is in Paul's illustration. Knowing that Jesus comes back means we put on that great triad of faith, of love, and hope. That means that we seek each day to, to grow in our faith, to work hard at knowing Jesus, to work hard at knowing the Bible better so that our trust in him is stronger. We work hard at at seeking to love our neighbors and care for all people and speak kindly about all people and love especially those in the church. And we work hard to increase our affection and our love for Christ. It means that we, we each day engage our minds to thinking about our future hope and what we have in Christ. That is how we live and that is how we dress as children of the day. And the fact that this is armor language implies that that these things protect us. They protect us from going back to the darkness, from the temptations and the allurement of the devil and the world that want to numb us to the, the inevitability of Jesus' return. We wait expectantly, we dress appropriately. Finally, and thirdly, we live securely. Here's the thing about the return of of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, this is his world. He owns it. And when he comes back to eradicate evil forever, the Bible calls it a day of judgment. It's the day of judgment when the Lord comes back. See, why, why do we need hope? Not just because of death, because there's something worse than death. We need hope because... Judgment is a reality. Every single one of you here, myself included, and every single human being who's ever existed is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, humanity is in rebellion against God. We don't listen to him. We serve ourselves. That's our natural condition. We are all like that, and we all need to be saved. But the problem is that we cannot save ourselves. But that's why Jesus came. That's why his first coming was promised. That's why he came 2,000 years ago. He came to make salvation and reconciliation and forgiveness possible through his death on the cross to pay the punishment that we deserve so that we could be brought out of the darkness and into the light. And that's why if you trust Jesus, when that day comes that is coming, you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to fear. And you can rest in total security and confidence Look at what Paul says, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And if you know that, it changes everything. Life is so full of uncertainties. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We don't know all the various different struggles that we will have to face in the future, if any. But there is one absolute certainty if you follow Jesus. You are safe and you will be saved. And there is nothing that you can do or anyone else can do that will separate you from that and from his love. Free from sin, free from judgment. We muck up, we do wrong all the time. But notice how Paul emphasizes the fact that this security is grounded in what God has done. Can't be in what we have done because we're rubbish and we'd fail. It's God who has obtained this for us. It's God who has destined this for us. Jesus died so that we might live. That is the gospel, and that is what Jesus wants to freely give to everyone here. He wants to give you life and everlasting hope. You can't earn this. You don't need to do anything. It's there for you. Take it. Take this hope. This is what God offers to humanity. We wait expectantly, we dress appropriately, and we live securely. Our time is done, but let me leave you with this very important concluding remark. We need to encourage one another about the truth of Jesus' return. We need to because we need, we need hope. We need it as a church. The second coming gives us the hope of resurrection in the face of death and the hope of salvation in the face of judgment. That's what we've seen. And Paul's big point is that this church will encourage one another with these great truths. You see that there in verse 18 of, of chapter 4 and in verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul says, encourage one another. It's amazing how little we share these great truths with each other. You know, most of you will know I was at the cup final last weekend. Um, it was a great and momentous day for Scottish football. Um, but in the run-up to that cup final, I talked about it a lot. I talked about my hope that Hibs would win it. They did. Um, but I, I talked about this a lot. And it's just a game of football. But I talked about it all the time. And how many times have I talked about Jesus coming back? I didn't even know that if that was a certainty. I know that this is a certainty. And this is the greatest thing ever. This is the redemption of the world. This is the salvation of our souls. How many times have we talked about this? And it's going to happen. Encourage one another, therefore, with this. People in our church are, are having to face the reality of death, and it's going to hurt. And we need to care for people like Joan and others who are going to be hurting. And the way we care for them is practically we look out for them, but there is a time in which we have to speak hope into their lives, and they have to speak it into our lives. We have to remind them of the great hope of the gospel in the face of the death of loved ones. We have to remind folks in our church, we have to remind each other of the hope of salvation because we feel sometimes far from God. We feel that we've let God down, that God could never accept me. We need to remind them what we see here, that this is what God has destined, what God has obtained. We remind them of the hope of salvation. So let me encourage you to do this in our prayer meetings, in our small groups. Why not this afternoon, as, as um, Robin was saying? just around the lunch table. Just talk about the sermon, talk about the passage. 
and just talk about the hope that you have as a Christian. Be a great way to encourage one another and build one another up. This is the blessed hope. Everything else in this world is going to fade. This will last forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the great hope that we can have as Christians in light of the gospel. Thank you for the the fact that this hope is grounded in what Jesus has already done. It's not grounded in us. It's not grounded in, in some ideas. But it's grounded in Christ and his death and his resurrection and what he has achieved for us. Father, help us to grow in this hope, to understand it. Help us to look forward to it. Father, we admit we get so caught up in the struggles of day-to-day life that we neglect this. And therefore, we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see things in the perspective of Christ's return. We pray above all, Lord, that you would help us to help each other. Help us to to rub hope into our grief. Help us to, to care for those who are hurting with the hope of the gospel to care for those who feel far and lost and unready for Jesus' salvation with the, with the hope of salvation. Father, I pray that these truths would be embedded deep within us. May we not forget them. May we not grow numb to the big picture. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.